Father, the praise and the honor is yours. It is your son's. It is your spirit's. We have no thing that we can give to you that would truly be worth all that you are. You are crowned in majesty and splendor and beauty for you created all things. Worthy is the lamb to receive glory and honor and power. Thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ. We praise Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Welcome, church. Please join with me by opening your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. Tonight, we're going to be in 1 Kings 19, or this morning, 1 Kings 19, verse 1. To eight. It's already November the 12th. I'm very glad to be here with you on this Remembrance Day weekend, but wow, we're 12 days into November already. Um, anyone know how many days that leaves us until Christmas now? Anyone know, like, off the top of their head? It's like, okay, 30 days in November, 30 minus 12 is 18, 18 plus 25 is, what, I didn't study this part of the message, what was it? <laughs> 43, right. Yeah, it was 44 yesterday, so it's going to be 43 today, right? Some people uh, love waiting for Christmas. The anticipation is exhilarating. I don't know about you. I already got decorations up in my home. Some people love the music, love the lights, love the shopping, love the smells, love the colors. The anticipation of waiting for Christmas is exhilarating. Now, for Christmas, waiting may be good. For a lot of things, waiting, not so fun. For most things, I would actually say waiting is not a building of anticipation, but a uh, uh, building up of frustration. Uh, because we know if that we have to wait for something, there's a measure of change that we're looking for that we just recognize is beyond our control. That's why I've got to wait for it. It's not fun. Maybe today you're... You're waiting for news from the bank or, or from the doctor or you're waiting to hear from your teacher if you can get an extension or uh, you're waiting for your spouse's sinful habits to change or, or you're waiting for your wayward child to come home and come back to the faith. We've come to a point in our story following the life of Elijah as we have been for the past four weeks, uh, following Elijah interacting with people who are very fearful. But now, for the first time, Elijah himself, the man of faith, he's crippled by fear. And Elijah, the spiritual giant, falls. And fails. He feels so desperately that he wishes he would die. But God had better plans for him. God had plans for renewal and for restoration, but the plan for renewal and restoration wasn't going to be one that came today, even tomorrow for Elijah. It was one that required that he wait. 
And this is what I believe God's word is going to speak to all of us today. When the righteous fail, God remains faithful. And change will come when we wait on the Lord. So as we do in honor of God, would you stand with me as we read his word together? 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1 to 8. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Please be seated. As you're taking your seats, I hope you're taking notes today as we study and consider God's word. Uh, this is something you can write down. Um, how did Elijah fail? Or what was it like when Elijah failed? Well, Elijah failed, though success was at hand. Let's go back into the book and understand where we got to to be able to be in God's text today. Verse 45 of chapter 18 says, and in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rose and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. The spiritual climate of the nation of Israel was so bad and so wicked that God was finally ready to bring a solution. But the only solution was revolution. King Ahab and his wife Jezebel were so wicked that God needed to cast out this oppressive, idolatrous regime. And just before our text today, um, Elijah, God's chosen true prophet, told wicked King Ahab to get his 850 false prophets and gather them at Mount Carmel to see, lay a sacrifice and call and pray to their respective gods, one living God, one fake God, and see which one of them would send fire down from heaven and consume the fire. The Lord proved that he himself was the true God. And 450 false prophets were slaughtered. 
And the people finally came back to the true living God and saying, we're ready to worship the Lord. We don't want to worship these false gods. The only solution was revolution and success was at hand. When they're at the mountain, after the confrontation was over, Ahab told, excuse me, Elijah told Ahab to leave. He didn't tell him where to go. He just said, go. And Ahab chose to go to Jezreel, which is the city where his wife's house was. And then it says that the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he also went to Jezreel. It seems like after one victory had been uh, accomplished, now God was prepping Elijah for a second victory. Ahab and Jezebel's prophets were defeated. Maybe now it was time for Ahab and Jezebel to be ousted. When success was at hand, Elijah failed. How is that possible? That such a giant of the faith could run? Well, um, Elijah failed when the wicked pushed back. And Jezebel was the wicked one who pushed back. Look back at the text, verse 2. Jezebel heard that her prophets were murdered, she said. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, the slaughtered prophets, by this time tomorrow. Jezebel made an oath by her own life that she would kill Elijah by the morning. Elijah failed when the wicked pushed back. And be sure, Jezebel was wicked. Ain't nobody naming their baby daughter Jezebel nowadays. And there's a good reason why. You see, some parts of the Bible are like, um, are are cute. Um, Have you heard of that Christian brand, Precious Moments? Y'all heard of that? My parents had a Precious Moments Bible. They had Precious Moments figurines. There are some scenes in the Bible, like the Nativity, where Jesus was born, where like a Precious Moments-like statue is necessary and fitting. There are some parts of the Bible that um, are more like that rated R movie that your kid wants to watch, and you will never let them watch. And that's one of those moments right now. How wicked was Jezebel? So wicked that God prophesied that she would be killed. And her murder, her execution, her righteous execution was so mutilating that when they went to bury her body, they couldn't find enough of her body to bury it. And God thought that was right. Well, why did she deserve that? God sent his prophets because he was compassionate to his people. He wanted them to hear his word and turn back to him. God, excuse me, Jezebel systematically hunted down the prophets of God to kill them. Oh, and she also personally financed 850 false prophets to turn the people of God away from God. Uh, uh, False prophets who worshiped a false god who thought it was cool if the worshipers of that false god offered their kids as a sacrifice. Wicked woman. Deserving of the death that she died. But, I mean, why, did Elijah have to run from her? He just defeated 
her prophets and had 52% of the 850 of them killed. Now all the people that worshipped her God is worshipping the true God. They're on his side. And God's hand is with him. And bro just called fire down from heaven. Did he really have to run? Elijah failed because he feared. How could a giant like this fall into this failure? And moreover, what do the people do now? The people, they're depending on Elijah. He just told them to turn to God, and now he's turning away from God? What do we do when our leaders fail us? How could our leaders fail us? Some of you might know this. Um, Billy Graham turned 99 recently. 99 years old of faithful gospel ministry. Uh, Billy Graham uh, is a famous evangelical preacher who rose to uh, almost a celebrity status when he did evangelical crusades in the 1940s. The size of Billy Graham's audience was often comparable to the size of the nation of Israel when it was gathered at Mount Carmel. Some pastors may preach to thousands in their their lifetime. Some may preach to hundreds of thousands in their lifetime. Um, Some, few, like Billy Graham, would preach to millions at one time. Yet there was another preacher who shared the pulpit with Billy Graham that you probably haven't heard of before. His name was Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton grew up in Toronto. In 1941, he founded Avenue Road Baptist Church a block up from U of T. In 1945, he helped start Youth for Christ with Billy Graham. Together, Charles and Billy preached throughout Europe, sharing the stage on evangelical crusades. Many thought Charles was a more talented preacher than Billy. One magazine even called Charles the Babe Ruth of evangelism. He even in the 50s had a nationally syndicated evangelistic TV show on CBS. Why have we heard of Billy Graham, yet not Charles Templeton? Because in 1957, Charles Templeton abandoned the faith. And though he preached a message that turned many people to God, he himself turned away from God and never came back and died in unbelief. What can we do when a leader like this fails? How can a leader like this fail? Well, maybe we should start by asking ourselves, what do we really put our trust in? Unfortunately, North American evangelical Christianity um, idolizes a lot of its pastors to a degree that is not healthy for their own holiness. And so many of the people under the leadership of pastors like this, it looks like we're trusting in their charisma, their gifting, their vision, their marriage, their reputation. 
Yet in 2017, too many pastors whose books I've read failed the ministry and their churches eroded under the acidity of their failure. And all of us can fall in that same way. The best of men are still men at best. And it doesn't matter who's behind the pulpit or whose name is on the book you're reading or the host of that Christian TV show you, you watch. Jeremiah 17 says this. It's a verse that I need to hear often. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Man, I don't know about you, but when I heard that story of Mark uh, Naylor and his ministry, my heart was just like singing with gladness. Is that book still around here somewhere, that Bible? Can someone hold it up if it's closest to you right now? If it's back there, do you mind holding it up real quick so that we can all see it? This is the greatest gift that 30 million Sunni Muslims could have ever received in all of human history. Praise God for the ministry of men like, amen, yes. <laughs> Praise God for the ministry of men like Mark Naylor. Because listen, any Bible translator, any Bible preacher, they're going to die. They're going to be gone. The f flesh fails. The grass withers. The flower fails. But the word of our God stands forever. And listen, when you would come to church here, the best thing that any bloke on this platform could ever do for you is open up the word and say, we preach Christ crucified. And we do that week after week, because 1 Corinthians 2 says that we need to see our faith rest not in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. And if we don't preach Christ crucified, we're resting our faith in the wisdom of man. This is all that we have. And listen, though, when the leaders who hold this up and proclaim this to us fail, um, God's word does not fail. Listen, Elijah's failure was monumental, but God's work wasn't done. God was still going to redeem and restore his people from their wretched idolatry. When the righteous fail, God remains faithful. We can only put our trust in the Lord and in his word. But listen, if we can learn from the faithfulness of Elijah, certainly we can learn from his failures. So let's look at his failures and see, you know, if, if we can fail in this way too. Elijah failed because he feared. Look back at the book with me, verse 3. It says, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. Elijah failed because he feared. Well, how did his fear manifest himself? Um, Pastor Paul gave us this definition or this explanation of fear a couple weeks ago. Fear rules my life when my focus is on the wrong things or in the wrong direction. Elijah failed, uh, failed because he feared, and he feared because his focus was wrong. 
he, he didn't remember that God just sent fire down from heaven. He didn't remember that all the people just turned back to God. All he was thinking about was the threat of this woman who God would destroy. His focus was wrong. He failed because he feared, and because of his fear, he abandoned God's calling. See, the location of where he ran is actually pretty important. It said that he's ran for his life to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. Now, Elijah was called to prophesy in Israel. He was born in Israel. Beersheba wasn't in Israel. It was in Judah. Every single decision that Elijah had made was only made because God told him to make it. This is the first time he makes a decision where there's no evidence of the word of God telling him to make a decision. He abandoned God. Elijah failed because he feared, and because of his fear, he chose isolation. He left his servant in Beersheba, but himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. This wasn't the first time that Elijah intentionally isolated himself. Remember when God told Elijah to go hide himself in the brook Kareth? Remember when God told him to hide himself? God did not tell him to isolate himself. We isolate ourselves because of our hard, deceitful hearts. His focus was wrong. He abandoned God's calling. He chose isolation. It gets worse. Um, he was crippled with guilt. Look at verse 4. It says, he said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. This is so sorrowful when I read this, because twice before in Elijah's life, he had a strong and secure sense of self. He knew who he was and where his worth was. Twice in his life, he said, I am one who stands before God. He had the confidence in his relationship with God, but now he identifies his sense of self not as standing with and before God, but as his wicked forefathers who were dead. That's who I'm associated with. That's who I'm worthy of. He's crippled with guilt, and he was hopelessly suicidal. We have four recorded prayers of Elijah in this story. Prayer number one, God, don't let it rain until I say let it rain. Prayer answered, didn't rain for three years. Prayer number two, God, send fire from heaven. Prayer answered. Prayer three, God, let it rain. Prayer answered. Prayer four, God, let me die. Hopelessly suicidal. So one day uh, in grade four, when I was a little grade four, however big little grade fours are, I went to school and my teacher looked to me with this really perplexed expression and I didn't know why. Uh, and she said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. She's like, are, are you sure? She's like, I'm fine. What's wrong? She's like, you don't look okay. You should go to the nurse's office. And I was like, I feel okay, but whatever. All right, I get out of class. That's fine. Go to the nurse's office. Immediately, she looks at me. Are you okay? 
It's like, I'm fine. What's wrong? He said, well, have you looked in the mirror recently? Should I? Well, I did. And apparently I wasn't okay. And I didn't realize it. But my neck and my shoulders were twisted like this. And I was walking around like this. I'm okay. I'm fine. There's nothing. Um, So I thought it was really cool, apparently, in grade four, and would, like, wear my knapsack on one shoulder. And I was little grade four Jason who carried so many books in his little grade four backpack that was so heavy that probably, like, a high schooler shouldn't even carry that amount of weight. And I didn't realize it, but the weight on my shoulders had so twisted my back that I thought this was fine, and I didn't realize it. And that's what fear does to our faith. Has your fear and your sinful failures so twisted your perspective of this world that you feel like Elijah did? Maybe you've been so gripped by fear recently because a new situation at family, at home, at work has presented itself and you're just, you're just shook because you don't know what to do. Maybe you think you should run. Maybe at least in your thoughts, you've already started to think like Elijah did. I'm done. I'm done with this job. I'm done with this school. I'm done with this family. I'm done with this marriage. I'm done with this faith. Maybe your fear has deceitfully convinced you that the solution to get out of your depression is to take a break from church. I've heard too many young men say that, and it's worked for zero of them. Maybe you're so mangled in your thinking because you forget you're standing with God. Friends, This is a word some of you may need to hear today as I need to hear every day. God's love for you is not determined by your successes or your failures. God's love for you is secured in the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered for your sins so that you could be saved from your sins. If anyone would turn from their sin and receive the message of Jesus Christ by faith. Immediately, they will be transferred from being an enemy of God and received as a friend and a dearly loved child. And nothing you can do can remove that standing. But maybe you've lost sight of that. And maybe it's gotten so bad that you've thought about it or even tried to hurt yourself. Maybe you go to bed at night often, wishing, like Elijah, that your eyes might close and it'd be okay if they never opened again. The weight of carrying around our fear like this is unbearable. The way it twists us is unbearable, and to some degree, 
to some degree, each one of these things that Elijah has, has felt, I've also felt. What about you? No matter how much the weight you feel may bear down upon you, there is only one solution to find relief. Fear reigns when our focus is on the wrong thing and the wrong direction. If our focus is on the wrong thing in the wrong direction and thus fear is reigning, the only solution is to fix our direction back by having faith in God. That's it. But you know, probably someone's already told you that before and you've easily dismissed it. Yeah, faith in God, believe in God. People told me that before. The Bible does not present believing in Jesus as some cookie-cutter, sugar pill solution to the twisted, mangled situation of your heart. Faith in God enables the object of your faith to enact his power in your life. Well, what is the object of your faith? It is your great high priest, Jesus Christ. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4. Listen carefully to this verse. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Are you in a time of need? Do you want relief? Then enact your faith in this, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He is our great high priest. He has been tempted in every way we have been tempted because he is fully God and fully man. Yet because being fully man, he was tempted as we were. Being fully God, he had victory over all of it. Moreover, he sympathizes with your weaknesses. He knows what you're struggling with. He cares about what you're struggling with, and he alone is able to offer relief in what you struggle with. Do you want relief? Then draw near to God, because he has promised in James 4 that he will draw near to you. When the righteous fail, God remains faithful. And we're going to continue reading because we will see that God faithfully intervened when Elijah was in the worst place of his life. And God wants to do that today with you. Let's keep reading. Verse 5, it says, And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, 
an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a, at his head a cake baked on hot stones with a jar of water. How did God faithfully intervene in Elijah's life? Well, he faithfully intervened in, a, in an unexpected way. This is the, the first and only time that God intervened in Elijah's life like this, like with a special manifestation of the angel of the Lord. Every time that God spoke with Elijah, it was, uh, here's my word, here's my word. He spoke to him. But this time, it wasn't just the audible voice. There was like a special manifestation of his presence. So God had spoken to him before, but not like this. This is unique. And God had fed him before, but this was unique too. Do you remember the last time God fed Elijah? It was the, um, uh, what I would call uh, fast food ravens when he was chilling at the brook Kareth, right? He didn't, uh, he, he just, every day, another raven, bring him more meat, more bread. Just the ravens came, just fast food, raven come and bring in the meat. This is different. This isn't fast food ravens. This is like a divine bed and breakfast, right? Goes to sleep, wakes up, breakfast is waiting for him. And this isn't like fast food, just meat dropping out. This is like he noticed that the cake was baked. He saw the stones that were required to bake the cake. The, the, the angel of the Lord had to like actually take the time to heat up the stones, to prepare the dough, and to bake the bread. And it's unexpected, but doesn't it seem um, tender and kind? God faithfully intervened in an unexpected way. He also faithfully intervened with kindness and grace. We see his kindness and grace in what doesn't happen here. For the first time, God graciously does not answer Elijah's prayer. Isn't it kind that God thought that there was a better solution for him than death? God had a better solution, one of renewal and restoration, and one that he has for all his children who are weighed down by burdens. He intervened in an unexpected way with kindness and grace. Also, he intervened in order to enable simple obedience. Back at the text, verse 7 the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said to him, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. God didn't want Elijah to fix his problem right away. He probably knew that he was so embittered and depressed that the solution needed time. God intervened only asking for simple obedience. Eat the bread. Admit that this is too much for you. And then, Elijah had to wait. Some waiting provokes anticipation. Some waiting provokes frustration. When the righteous fail, God faithfully 
God remains faithful. And change will come if we wait on the Lord. I'm not a fan of putting together Ikea furniture. Maybe you are. You're weird. (laughs) But whenever you open up Ikea furniture, it always has the same process. I don't like it, though. I don't know, is that the name of the furniture or the way I'm supposed to feel after I put it together? (laughs) Feels more like the second one. But no matter what it is, um, when you, this process is the same to start it. I know it's going to be a headache to get to the end, but the process is always the same to start. Open the box. Get the instructions. I'm not the kind of guy that can do it without the instructions. And then, find the Allen key, right? That's all you need. God wasn't asking Elijah to fix his depression Immediately, he only wanted simple obedience. Admit you can't do it. And then wait on me. I think a lot of us have settled into a new normal that has mangled and twisted our faith because we look to all the work that will need to be done to fix my mangled heart. My marriage is so mangled. My sexuality is so mangled. My attitude is so mangled. My relationships are so mangled. My academics are so mangled. My finances are so mangled. And we're so overwhelmed with what needs to be done that we can't or won't do the first simple things that God wants us to do. And let's be honest. Fixing our mangled hearts isn't like putting together a freshly new Ikea furniture right out of the box. Now, it's more like buying a used piece of Ikea furniture that was advertised as looking good on Kijiji, but when you got it, it was so mangled that you wanted to try and fix it, but you feel like, yeah, I just want to throw this out. That's what my heart is like. What about yours? God isn't asking you to fix your mangled heart today. He's only asking you to admit that it's too much for you and to trust him as you wait on the Lord. Allow me to leave you with one final Bible verse. It's in Psalm 130. Would you turn your Bible there together with me? When the righteous fails, God remains faithful. God faithfully intervened in an unexpected way with Elijah, um, with kindness and grace. Um, Yet Elijah had to wait. The only solution to all of our burdens is faith in Jesus Christ. And God is calling you to the same thing today if your mangled heart needs renewal and restoration. Rise and wait on the Lord. Listen to Psalm 130, verse 5 and verse 6. It says, I wait for the Lord. 
my soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. So in ancient military units, uh, they would often have walls guarding their big cities. And one military post was a post called the watchman. And the watchman's job was to stand on the wall and uh, oversee his watch. Not like the watch on your wrist. The watch referred to a segment of time where they must stand and look out to see if any enemies come. When the watchman was told in this passage or said that they were waiting for the morning, the psalmist is likely thinking of the watch that happened from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. When the watchman starts their watch at 2 a.m., it is pitch black. And they want the morning to come. And they know the morning will come. And they know the sun will rise, but there's nothing that they can do to make it come any faster. And this might be what you feel like in your heart today. Pitch blackness. Longing for the sun to shine. Change is coming, brothers and sisters. Change will come, brothers and sisters, but there's nothing that you can do to make it come quicker. God isn't asking you to fix your mangled heart today. He's only inviting you to admit that it's too much for you to rise and to wait on the Lord. Do you want relief today? Then rise from the depths of the darkness where you are. Admit that it's too much for you. And wait on the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for the scriptures and the example of the life of a man of faith who fails as we fail. Father, we are so wretched. My heart is so wretched and broken. But thank you, Lord God, that you receive broken sinners like me. Lord, let us recognize that what we are carrying on our shoulders is too much for us. Let us see that our fear has only twisted us and lift our eyes up. You who say you are the lifter of our heads, you who say you are our helper, lift our eyes up that we would see that you, are, you know our struggle, you care for us in our struggle, and that in Jesus Christ you are able to offer relief in the midst of our struggle. So, Lord, let us rise 
and wait upon you, believing that change is coming. In Jesus' name, amen.